this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Mike Belshi from BitGo. Mike has an impressive background. He was at Microsoft and Google before taking on BitGo, and BitGo is one of the premier services in crypto for custody. So we talked a lot about the state of the state of custody. We talked about cold storage, as some other guests have alluded to. Cold storage, in their opinion, is the same technology that is used by pirates in the night in the 1700s, where you bury crypto in a treasure trust, and then you make a treasure map of where those gold coins are. And so we talked a lot about what the state of the uh, state of storage is. I think Mike was pretty honest with the fact that where we are today is not where we're going to be in the near term future. um, And that evolutions and new technologies are coming uh, in and helping out a lot with that. We talked a lot about insurance. And so BitGo uh, had an announcement a few months ago uh, about $100 million of insurance, um, whereas this is becoming a really interesting topic. Um, you know, insurers are trying to start to look at custody solutions. Can they insure them for any potential losses, for hacks? And so we talked a lot about the state of insurance as it relates to crypto, and we haven't done that before. And so this is a great conversation, all encompassing about what's happening in custody from one of the really most respected people in the space right now. And so remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear the conversation with Mike. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I am really, really excited about this. I have Mike Belshi, who is the co-founder and CEO of BitGo. Mike, how are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, David. Well, this is going to be really fun because, as I was telling Mike before, coming from the family office world and trying to educate them about digital assets and blockchains, there has always been this apprehension to coming into the space because of custody. And we're going to have a great conversation about some of the things that BitGo is doing uh, in the custody space and beyond the custody space. But Mike, if you could give us a little background about yourself, if you could. Um, You are formerly at places that are very well known, like Google and Microsoft. And so if you could give us a little background about yourself, and then we're going to go into what BitGo is doing and go through lots of things to help educate people about what you guys are doing. Originally a software developer, so I'm a technologist. Uh, I got bit, I suppose, by the startup bug uh, some 25 years ago or so, years ago or so. Um, when I, uh, I joined Netscape uh, a little bit before it went public. Um, so I worked, uh, actually Ben Horowitz was my product manager over there. Um, I knew Mark Andreessen um, and uh, worked together. That was uh, my first taste of kind of uh, technology startups in Silicon Valley. And uh, I've been doing a number of startups ever since then. I founded a couple of companies. Um, founded one called uh, Lookout, which uh, pioneered email search before that was really a, a well-known thing which we sold to uh, Microsoft in 2004. Um, I was there for a few years working on their search products. Then I went on to, uh, to Google. I uh, was very fortunate to be one of the founding members of the, the Chrome team there. Um, there were about 10 people on the team when I, when I was getting started and uh, had, a, had a fantastic experience kind of through that. 
uh, I was always interested in, in speed and performance, which was one of the, the key tenets of Chrome. So um, uh, with some of my networking background, I started working on discovering ways to make web pages load faster. Uh, and I invented a little protocol called Speedy, uh, along with a fellow named Roberto Pion over there, and, uh, and the lead author of HTTP 2.0, um, which, which was evolved out of, out of that Speedy protocol. And uh, so after Google, though, you know, I, I, even when I went to Google, I, I knew I liked small companies. I like building things from scratch. Um, and so uh, I knew I, I was going to be starting something and uh, ended up uh, discovering the Bitcoin protocol. Um, I wish I had uh, paid attention more closely uh, the first time I heard about it, but uh, that's all right. I got in relatively early. Um, but uh, uh, I was holding a, a fair amount of Bitcoin on behalf of my friends and uh, very securely in an air gap machine underneath my couch at the time. Mm-hmm. And as the value of that kept growing, um, I got more and more nervous about security, much like what you just said earlier about, you know, from the family office side, you know, holding on to your own funds um, with no safety nets is a scary proposition. <clears throat> and uh, so anyway, that led to some study and research, found kind of the P2SH elements of Bitcoin, which is the underpinnings of multisig. And uh, started building product out of it, and uh, that's that's where Bitco comes from. So, anyway, strong technology background is is most of what I do. I also enjoy just building things uh, from scratch. That's me. So interesting. So, aside from obviously what you built at Bitco, you know, getting into just a little bit of a conversation because you come from the technology background, and you're talking about protocols, HTTP, etc. And you know, is there something when you read the white paper? You know, or you kind of ingested more about the world that was being built in, in terms of distributed decentralized systems, the Bitcoin blockchain and others out there. Was there something that just resonated to you that said, my God, that makes so much sense? Or is there something that just kind of was there a light bulb moment that this is going to be really massive? And then aside from, you know, the kind of security issues that you alluded to, is there something in there that said, wow, this is really where I want to spend time and I want to build something in this space? Yeah. Um, well, when I first, when I when I really got into it, and you start reading all the different facets of the protocol, from you know mining to how transactions work and, and all that, um, there's a little bit of disbelief. Like, are these pieces really going to fit together to make a whole puzzle? Um, and so you, you keep reading and you keep studying and looking at it and learning and understanding, and I couldn't find any holes in it. And I think probably like a lot of people, I probably started trying to poke holes in in somewhat naive. Um, elementary parts of it, you know, just in terms of how the hashing of addresses was working, which crypto algorithms were used, et cetera. But once you realize that actually it was a holistic system that had a uh, a good underpinning to it, um, then you start to think about what the global implications are. And, you know, I wouldn't consider myself to be a, a heavy libertarian, but, um, you know, like a lot of people that are in the crypto space, you know, there's some elements of freedom of money and freedom of financial systems, which is just incredibly attractive to me. Um, you know, economics and politics overlap um, in our in our current financial system, and Bitcoin is an opportunity to take away from people who are uh, a bit emotional about how money works and set a set of rules and hand those rules over to computers, because computers will faithfully execute those rules consistently and without variation. Um, and so if you can get that right, you know, you can avoid a problem that has plagued financial systems throughout history. 
uh, you know, at the end of the day, every financial system run by humans has collapsed. Uh, and whether that's for, I'm sorry, from from um, beneficial actions um, uh, or malintended actions, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the fact is that humans have a difficult time maintaining things over time. Right. So this idea that computers might be able to help us do better, um, I think, is extremely fascinating. Now, one thing I don't want to be um, uh, confused about here, though, at the end of the day, even even Bitcoin is controlled by humans. Um, we've handed the rules for the day-to-day -day operations of it over to computers by way of this decentralized network that's run across you know millions of machines. But if there really were an absolute uh, catastrophe, uh, all of those machines are still operated by humans today, and it is possible to change it. But um, overall, it may well be the most um, whim-resistant uh, form of money we've ever had um, globally. It's so interesting because if anyone has read, you know, Nick Zaba or has listened to him talk, he talks about this notion of wet and dry contracts and about how the wet is kind of what we do day-to-day -day human where we look at a piece of literature, we read something, we make an interpretation about that. Whereas, you know, with the dry, that is computer code, that's X equals Y and that's it. And so it's really interesting the way you put it because uh, I've thought a lot about that lately too. Getting into Bitco, so we're changing the way the financial system works. Digital assets are the most exciting investment vehicles in decades, and institutional investors need services and solutions they can trust. BitGo eliminates risk and increases transparency by providing the most secure and compliant custodial and liquidity solutions. So let's talk about that. Let's unpack that. Um, you know, let's go into the compliant custodial, uh, custodial solutions and liquid, liquidity solutions. Give us a little bit of a state of the state because you've been in this for a while now, you know, over the last few years, you know, where have we come from, you know, where are we going today and what's kind of the future? What, what is this all kind of looking like? Right. <clears throat> well, that question overlaps a little bit with uh, kind of how I describe the, the three phases of, of Bitco's evolution, um, kind of stealing from a Elon Musk style, you know, playbook of, of uh, three-step master plan, so to speak. Um, a few years ago, when Bitco started, we were a technology company, and our job was securing initially Bitcoins, but thereafter digital assets. And we, we start that with a multi-sig platform. We expand that into a multi-user platform, uh, a policy management mechanism on top of it to enable businesses and institutions to be able to access funds. And that was very much a technology play. So we sold that to technology companies. And uh, these were folks that already opted into crypto. We didn't uh, we didn't want to have the burden of uh, convincing our clients, hey, you need to have crypto and you need to have our technology. So instead, we were kind of kind of more niche that way. And as the industry evolved, you know, around 2016, we started to see a different type of client emerge. And these are more traditional financial services players. Uh, the big the biggest one that came to us kind of in that time frame was uh, CME Group that was getting started with some digital asset work. And these types of companies have a very different set of needs. Uh, these are fiduciaries. Um, these guys have a brand and a responsibility, which is at a completely different level to what those early pioneers of, of crypto had. So uh, we had to change the model a little bit, where the first part of the product was really about safekeeping of the asset, which, by the way, is fundamentally what a custodian does. Um, now, these new players were actually looking for uh, actual custody. So this is a layer of compliance and regulation. Um, what that means is 
if you're going to hand your assets over uh, to somebody to hold or store for you, um, you want to know that that is a bona fide, legitimate, you know, handler for your for your assets. That means, you know, who is the management team? How long have they been in operations? How does the technology work? Um, you know, what's their capital balance sheet look like? A, lo- a lot of a lot of different different factors. Um, but they want to see that we've taken all the steps in terms of audits, like SOC two audits, in terms of in, you know backing of insurance, et cetera. This is a new cast of characters. Um, so this is a new type of client, and that's what we started hitting kind of 2016, 2018. I think we're actually still in that phase where this uh, set of traditional finance players are coming to the market. But obviously, like the large amount of institutional access is not there. Um, what BitGo is still about to this day is making digital assets available for everyone. And unfortunately, the market structure for handling these assets is not as robust as the market structure for handling traditional assets are today. That is, if you were participating in precious metal markets, derivatives markets, equity markets, there's a whole infrastructure of exchanges, broker dealers, clearing houses, custodians, and banks which creates a robust set of players that backstop each other. Now you can love it, you can hate it, it's got flaws, absolutely. But if you go into the crypto space today, you find uh, silos where a single party is taking care of the exchange. They are also the broker dealer. They're also the clearinghouse. They're also the custodian. By putting all of those roles into a single function, unfortunately we're bringing tremendous risk to the investors that are using those clients. And we have to kind of tease that apart in order for this uh, new set of clients that are fiduciaries that you know represent you know funds and management of other people's money. Right. Frankly, when you're managing other people's money, you have a higher bar, higher duty of proof that you are worthy of that than if you're just managing your own money. You want to manage your own money, you can put it in your closet. It's your choice. You want to manage somebody else's money? No, you can't put it in your closet. You have to go through uh, and demonstrate that you're capable of handling it. So I think that's the phase we're still in today. Now, where are we going? Um, I mean, for those of us that are in the space, we're very excited about what digital assets bring. Frankly, as you know, the ability to send money around the planet 24 hours a day, seven days a week at almost no cost is uh, a feature we've never had before. Uh, We talk about a global economy, which we certainly do have. We can outsource jobs to India. We can uh, outsource manufacturing to China. But if you want to pay a supplier on a Sunday night to get started on manufacturing in China on a Monday morning, good luck. The banking system simply can't do it. So there's these unsolved problems in banking that digital assets are finally going to allow us to unlock. And in order to do that, we got to get really serious about a couple of problems that exist, not just in crypto banking, but also in other types of banking, which is identity and security. Um, The reason it's so hard to move money abroad is because it's a uh, it's a it, it's a much smaller business than local money, um, but B it's a much harder business than local money because the relationships between the banks and they pretty much depend on relationships today is so much harder to establish and they can't build those trust channels that they can build with you know local participants under the same jurisdiction et cetera in the same way. Digital assets are going to are going to make this all possible. It's going to take a long time, but we're finally starting to build the global financial system to accompany the global economy that we already have. 
few things. One, I love the fact that you were you used the word fiduciary numbers of times. I think that is, you know, we, we talk about that, you know, that is a word that we pride ourselves on and it is a very specific role and there are responsibilities that you alluded to, which a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate in crypto, but I, I love the fact that you brought that up. And two, the notion of kind of sending money 24-7, 365. You know, we had Michael Dunworth on with Wire, and we talked about supply and logistics, you know, and the same kind of issues that you just talked about, you know, Sunday, trying to get your money to your supplier to start building those widgets. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So you hit it on the head on that. I want to get into the custody and kind of state of the state. And so... There's a few questions, one about hot and cold. If anyone doesn't know the difference between hot and cold wallets at this point in time, listening to the show, I haven't done my job. But if you need more information about that, happy to talk to you and, and discuss that more. But let's talk about the state of technology and cold storage first. So a competitor said this recently that the current state of cold storage is you look at the status quo and it was still cold storage. It's the same technology used by pirates in the 1700s. You bury your crypto in a treasure trust, and then you make a treasure map of where those gold coins are, except with a USB key, security deposit, and checklist. And so I would love for you to opine on that and talk to us about what you're seeing in terms of the technological innovations there and a little bit about kind of what the mentality and kind of the thoughts are in terms of cold storage going forward. Yeah. Well, first off, um, as a technologist, I mean, it is horribly disappointing that here we have the world's most fantastic form of money. It turns out to be an Internet form of money. And in order to secure it, we take it off the Internet. I mean, that is just incredibly disappointing. But, you know, if you are a fiduciary, if you've been in this space for any period of time, you know that the number one requirement of custody is safekeeping. Um, frankly, uh, we cannot take risks. We cannot uh, expose our clients in ways that um, could could lead them to logging in one morning and finding a zero balance. So the the folks that are anxious to see technology solve this problem, I, I'm with them. I want to see that as well. But if I have to make a trade-off between safekeeping and fast access of money, I'm going to choose safekeeping. The fact is, Google's been hacked. Facebook has been hacked. The U.S. government has been hacked. This last week, the entire Russian country and the nation of Russia was hacked, right? Um, so uh, if, a, if a small firm thinks that it's got technology that's so bright and shiny and new and somehow is resistant to hacks uh, at a level that none of these massive entities have been able to do, I think they're fooling their clients. We're storing billions of dollars of value here. When you have a hot wallet, the keys are online. And you know, some of the competitors are saying, oh, it's not hot or it's cold. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Are your keys online or are they not online? If they're online, that's a hot wallet. And frankly, I think that's the wrong way to solve security today. You take it offline, you're just not vulnerable to hacks from the six billion people around the world that have internet access. If it's online, you are. And if you think your technology that can be brand new and perfectly secure to store uh, to secure billions of dollars all at once is possible, I think I think that's a mistake. I just think it's the wrong trade-off. Now, and and clients shouldn't actually have to worry about hot or cold storage. Um, you know, when you think about custodians in the banking system, 
do you go to the bank and ask them what brand of vault do you have? You don't do that, right? Instead, you go to them and you say, hey, I want to store my money with you. And you understand kind of the terms of how you can move money in and out. And then what should happen is you use a service, right, a firm that has got assets. It's got a capital balance sheet. We can use hot wallets. We can use cold wallets behind the scene. We're absolutely going to use cold wallets for, for billions of dollars. It's the only responsible thing to do. Um, but if you want to have access to liquidity, we can use a hot wallet buffer internally where we manage our risk by only having a limited amount of funds in hot um, and then uh, the bulk of funds are, are in cold storage. By the way, if you want to have backstops on this system, how do you how do you tell an underwriter or how do you convince an underwriter that your brand new technology of hot wallets is uh, is going to be secure enough for billions of dollars so that they could write a check um, you know, behind you uh, as an underwriter? Very difficult prospect to do. On the other hand, you know, you can, through SOC 2 audits and other things, you can verify, indeed, you've got the processes, the controls, the technology for the offline storage that you can get cost-effective, you know, insurance underwriting and backing of that cold storage. So, look, I, I want to be clear. I'm disappointed that we have to move uh, funds offline. But when you think about all of the hacks that are happening across the industry, not just in crypto, I think it's the safe thing to do today. We will get to systems which are better. But number one, safekeeping above all else. I agree. Um, great points. So there is this notion because crypto is a very specific asset and you have things like proof of stake models where you participate in these networks to help them grow and to help them validate transactions and different things that are happening on chain. And so if you are using cold storage potentially and it's maybe offline in an air gap, you know, it could take a little time. And when there's governance, you know, kind of procedures and calls, you know, there needs to be access to that, to, to those tokens fairly quickly. And in some cases with more institutional grade cold storage, it can take a little while. Um, in a little while, I would love you to define that because, you know, you know, two, three years ago, it would be a few days. And I'm sure that things have obviously gotten a little bit better. But, you know, you kind of, you know, there's this issue with cold storage as it relates to staking and to some of the governance issues uh, with some of these networks. I'd love you to kind of talk th us through that and how that could be th you know, potentially solved. Gotcha. Okay, well, let's um, let's split the two issues. Well, first about just access of the, the the currency itself, and then second, we can talk about staking and governance and all that. Um, so, you know, security and speed uh, rarely go well together. That is, if it's possible to access your money quickly, it's probably not that secure. So, moving a million bucks, you need to be able to do that instantly. Sure, no problem. Ten million bucks, you might want to put a little bit of checks on it. It depends on the institution how much you want to move. Um, can you move that without going to cold storage? Of course. I mean, we know how to secure 10 million, 20 million bucks, you know, in in a number of ways that don't require going to cold storage. But if you're talking about $100 million, frankly, I think you want it to be slow. You want it to go through some procedural checks. Um, by the way, we've actually helped some clients that have done like $300 million purchases of, of Bitcoin. You know how long it takes to move $300 million of cash to the banking system? <laughs> Months. Literally, it's months. It's uh, outlining procedures and processes and checkpoints and controls. It is a very difficult process. So uh, we are not talking about months with cold storage. We're talking about days. Uh, the good news is with this technology, you can set the policies the way you need them for your business and for the risks that you're willing to take. 
So one client might find a million dollars to be a very uh, high risk. Another client might find a million dollars to be just daily routine, no problem. And we can set thresholds that are different for, for each of those clients. So anyway, I don't believe cold storage or hot storage is a long-term key differentiator. Uh, I think it's the overall security. How do you run the operational controls around it? And you know, the operational controls of any secure system are at least as important as the technology. Uh, to give an example of that, you, know, you can have a fantastic, very secure, very long password. But if you write it down on a sticky tab and put it on your monitor, it's not very secure. Similarly, inside of a, a custodian, you know, how do you make sure that there's not a single person inside the company that has access to the key material? What happens if someone that, that used to have access to key material leaves the firm? How do you log it? How do you audit it? You know, all of the processes around the A team, B team, you know, uh, compromised security protocols, et cetera, it's all mundane and each one simple. But in aggregate, it's a very large body of work and has to be taken care of very responsibly and very carefully. And so that's why operational controls and audits are so, so important to accompany any technology. All right, so that's cold storage generally. Now back to the staking and governance um, question. Uh, yeah, we've got staking products actually uh, already running and uh, more will be announced in the near future. Um, for most of the protocols, Cold storage and multi-sig are 100% compatible with with staking. There's a couple of uh, a couple of the blockchains where they actually require keys online in order to to do staking or governance, but most of them don't. I think the the protocols will evolve to all provide support for staking governance uh, by way of um, you know a delegated uh, staking keys or whatnot mm-hmm. that support. Full cold multi-sig. You shouldn't have to compromise security in order to you know, receive kind of this passive benefit of, of staking or in order to vote from a, a governance perspective. Right. And so with BitGo, um, I believe it says most coin options secure 100 plus coins and tokens. So I'm thinking that or it's an assumption and I want you to obviously correct me if I'm wrong. But there has to be some sort of underwriting to that, whether it's, you know, coins that are, you know, very liquid or ones that, you know, have that are on specific exchanges. You know, there's obviously when you're thinking of being an investor in this space, one of the things you have to consider is counterpart risk and that's exchange risk. You know, that's one thing that we talk about a lot. And so with 100 plus coins and tokens that you're supporting, is there what are the underwriting principles for that? Um, well, let's see. Everything we do is is multi-sig, 100%. Um, you'll find uh, other other participants in the space are using single-sig when it's convenient. Uh, we we pull out all the stops to uh, make sure that uh, we get full security on every every single coin. So because of that, uh, in terms of the underwriting, we have um, a very clear statement of fact and uh, understanding of processes and controls and technology. Uh, with our insurance underwriters that that backstop the coins that we we um, that we store. So first off, uh, uh, almost all the coins that we store are in segregated wallets on a per client basis. So this means that your your coins would not be commingled with with any other firm. And we go to great lengths to make sure that every wallet has completely independent keys, so that there is a very little chance of a correlated loss between any two clients. So this helps tremendously because we just kind of partition the problem in a way that makes 
each client's protections and underwriting needs um, separate from the others. You can't completely mitigate this because you know there's always always some amount of um, common controls, but but we go pretty far. Uh, second thing we do is like even for clients that do have more than $100 million with us, because um, that's where our insurance policy limit is, uh, we can split them into multiple silos. So you can make sure that you never have more than $100 million kind of in, a, in, in an individual um, uh, individual element. But lastly, we're working on, um, I think, the most creative uh, changes to the insurance and underwriting that's uh, uh, going on in the space. And I, I think... Um, uh, this has been a hard process. So we've been working on insurance for at least uh, a couple of years now. Uh, we, we we announced our $100 million uh, policy, uh, I think, about a year ago. Um, but uh, uh, the, the next version of that that we'd like to see go forward is for our individual clients to be able to get um, adjusted insurance amounts dedicated to them um, that they can buy separately as add-on excess insurance to what we offer today. And the reason this is so hard is because the insurance industry doesn't work this way. They are not used to this style of, uh, of product. Um, but uh, they've gotten comfortable with our technology. They've audited it. They've, they've seen it firsthand. They know how it works. So now they can start to figure out how to build an excess policy that rides on top of the BICO technology and uh, offer that at a very low rate on a per-client basis. So I don't know if I was fully answering your question about underwriting and backing, um, but it's a very important point. Um, we have to insure this stuff. Um, fiduciaries want to know, first off, are you the, the provider that is taking care of all the things that will never lose it? And you know what? If you ever screw up, who's your backup? Um, and that's where the insurance comes in. Yep. So that leads us to the next question. So... There was a recent uh, reporting clip from Ian Allison on Aon and crypto. Insurance is scarce for crypto held at custodians or exchanges, particularly with hot wallets. However, the insurance industry has gradually responded to demand starting to cover for cold storage, which is similar to storing bullion or cash in a vault. So, you know, in your opinion, obviously you have gotten your insurance, you know, you're one of the few out there that is actually in that. So what is the state of insurance, you know, in your opinion, you know, and do you think it's changing rapidly? Do the, the reinsurers and the insurers out there, the aeons of the world out there, are they saying, okay, it's time to really take this seriously. This is not going away. Bitcoin has been around for 10 years. These other digital assets are, are obviously taking shape. Are, are you seeing and are you hearing that the insurance industry is kind of changing and starting to really come to the table now? Um, it, it's a complicated answer. Uh, yes, they are trying to, to come to the table. Um, but remember, their job is to uh, to understand risk. And this is a new market. They don't fully understand the risk. It's a brand new technology. They don't fully understand the technology. And there's not a large pool of clients to amortize losses across yet. So this all leads to high rates. Well, when you have high rates, fewer people buy the insurance, fewer people buying it, it makes the problem worse. Um, exacerbating the problem, in my opinion, is that the 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 insurance industry is a bit antiquated. I mean, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Aon. They're actually a broker, not an underwriter. So the underwriters, um, you know, they, they work in in syndicates through Lloyd of London. They work in other means, and then you've got these brokers and. You can kind of only work through one broker at a time, and you can't really reach all the underwriters without getting through the brokers. And it it just creates this um, 
this degree of separation, which makes it hard to, to pioneer new product because you've got multiple layers of, of entities with different jobs um, that you have to, have to work through. But good news, yes, there absolutely is more interest. Yes, the firms in the crypto space are large enough that we can start to buy interesting products, which makes it financially worth it for the underwriters to start start to come to the table. Um, I think there's still going to be a tremendous amount of change. It's still too expensive. Um, I think it's hard to evaluate one technology versus the other. Um, I'm pretty confident that BitGo has the lowest rate um, uh, for paying for insurance of anyone in the market um, because of the depths that we've gone to both at the technology layer and also at the um, operational controls and, and regulatory layer. So um, I think it's changing. I think it's getting better, um, but it's going to take a long time as well. It's right. a slow moving industry for sure. So you have some other services out there. Um, as a qualified custodian, you are uniquely positioned to deliver riskless, efficient, and compliant crypto trading, clearing, and settlement. So clients' um, assets remain secure, never leave cold storage trades, are settled off-chain via virtual journal swaps and synchronized on-chain upon withdrawal. So want to get into the mechanisms here. Um, without giving away, obviously, too much. But if, you know, you can, go, you can kind of go into the mechanisms of place for this. Is it on, is it an escrow? Is it settled off-chain? Or is it some sort of state channel or hash time lock? What are the, some of the kind of the nitty-gritty pieces here that make this happen? All right. Um, well, first off, it's an evolutionary process. It's not just going to be done in one step. Um, but we can start to tease apart um, a few critical problems. Uh, so to that end, you need to understand a little bit about the difference between being a trust company um, and like an exchange. So the fact is, is that actually there's probably more assets held on exchanges around the world than there are held in actual custodians. And this is a critical point. So as a custodian, a trust company, um, a trust bank, what that means is that your account is your money. It is not commingled with the trust's money is not commingled with other clients' money. If the trust should go under, go out of business for whatever reason, there is a regulator that knows how to step in and, in fact, has capital on reserves from us for coming in and cleaning everything up uh, and making sure that your money does not get washed in with uh, the creditors against the trust company should that happen. So your money is your money. You move it into BitGo. It's still your money. It's not our money. When you send your money to an exchange, you're actually giving your money to the exchange, and it is commingled with the exchange's assets. And even if that exchange operates a custodian on the side, the deposits to all of today's exchanges are to the exchange, which means if that exchange goes out of business the, the minute after you wrote that $100 million check to them, that means your money is fair game for the creditors against the exchange. If that had happened to the trust company, that would not be true. All right. So anyway, having the right regulatory structure for being a bank or trust company is critical. Now, the second thing is um, the state of the art today in crypto for trading is one of two means. Either A, you prefund an exchange, which we started to talk about just a moment ago, where you send your assets to the exchange first, your cash usually. Um, and then after that, they let you trade with them or you're using an OTC desk where they might agree to a trade and then they'll give you some period of time, usually a day, to settle that trade. But it's very much a uh, you send first problem. Um, so the, the OTC desk will say, okay, send me the $100 million and I'll send you the Bitcoin. Um, 
Well, no other asset class works this way, where you just have to trust the counterparty to deliver the funds. Um, but stepping back to what that trust company does, trust companies have routinely handled escrows. Escrows look a lot like a bilateral trade. Each party can put the assets with the custodian. The custodian can make sure that all of the checks are done, all the appropriate approvals are in place, and then swap the assets. So at the escrow level, we're used to this from kind of a re real estate type of perspective. Um, usually it's perceived as kind of a sluggish and slow process. But if you marry that with a little bit of technology, you can actually make that a real-time process. So party A says, I would like to buy a uh, million dollars worth of Bitcoin. Party B says, I'll give you a thousand Bitcoins. Um, and uh, then a simple affirmation from both sides, and you can you can swap those assets. So that's the product that we're building uh, today. And what it allows, it allows for you to keep your money. It's yours. It's never commingled with anybody else's. It never becomes an asset of an exchange. And yet you can settle it in real time. So you get a lot of strong benefits that way. And we start to disentangle this uh, counterparty risk problem that exists in the trading vehicles that we have today. Now that's the first step. And actually to make that work, then you, you know how do you how do you settle those on chain versus off chain, um, which is a fantastic question. Um, the 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 product that we're offering initially is actually an off chain uh, wallet for that. So you specifically have to move your funds when you're getting ready to do one of these settlements. You actually move them into a uh, omnibus wallet that that's controlled by us, and that's just for the purpose of trading. But you can pull back to your own wallets kind of at any time. Um, when you want. It still remains your money. You didn't have to give it to us. It doesn't become ours. It's just in an off-chain wallet. And then we can swap them in real time very quickly. That gives uh, our clients the uh, the speed of trading that they're looking for, while also giving them still all the advantages of custody that they had previously. Um, over time, this will evolve. And you've, you've certainly heard of atomic swaps, right? Absolutely. Today, Today, the blockchains, uh, they don't really scale that well if you wanted to do tons and tons of atomic swaps, um, but we will get there. And the other thing which doesn't exist is cross-custodian protocols. Um, so kind of stepping back to my HTTP roots, right? I mean, what is what is HTTP? Um, HTTP is a protocol, an agreement between web browsers and web servers about how to exchange data to render a web page. Uh, in order to trade data cross custodians, we need to start building protocols that establish the means by which we'll do this. Sure, on chain, we can say atomic swap, but there, there's, a, there's, there's an infinite number of variants for how to actually employ that. So uh, over the next few years, I think it's incumbent upon the, the custodians, the, 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 uh, the top tier custodians in particular, to come together, build these protocols, agree on how to do the atomic swaps. We also need the blockchains to, to reach a higher level of uh, speed for processing these and scalability, yeah. um, but we'll get there. A lot of interoperability in that, and uh, that's a fascinating kind of subject on its own that we've tried to address a lot. Getting to the kind of the top here, you know, one of the other things that I've seen you guys have been getting into is private blockchains. So we approach private blockchain construction in pursuit of the same angle that has guided our work on public blockchains, making digital currencies function as mature systems with enterprise scale tools. So this is interesting because we've had a lot of conversation about that publicly over the last few weeks, you know, with Facebook's Libra um, and their attempts. And we've seen JP Morgan with their attempts and Samsung. So are you seeing a lot of corporates reaching out to you for this? Who's uh, who's reaching out to you for the for the private blockchains? Is it people that want to that are kind of 
scared still of the public blockchains where trade secrets, et cetera, can be on a public blockchain. They want to be able to lever some of the functionality. Who is like the main use kind of client for this? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's exactly right. Um, uh, the first one we did was actually CME in the Royal Mint. Uh, we created a product called Royal Mint Gold, which was a permissioned ledger. So um, kind of terminology wise, for, for me, you've got public chains, which is where anybody can hook up a node and, and connect. You've got private chains, which would be kind of behind a firewall and you have to go talk to somebody. Um, that's probably like a JP coin. Um, you've got permissioned ledgers where you know somebody has to grant you access to something that's viewable publicly um, in order to participate. Um, but but why why did these guys, why did these corporates want to use their own chain instead of a public chain? Um, Ideally, they wouldn't want to um, because building your own chain with sufficient um, decentralization is an extremely high cost thing to do. Um, it seems like it shouldn't be that hard to get lots of nodes to run your validators and all that, um, but it, it's it's a lot. Facebook and, and Libra is is attempting to do that, and you know I think they have the strength and the power to probably pull that off. Um, but it is a tremendous amount of work. But the reason that uh, people choose that is usually because that's right. They want to have more control about the blockchain. And especially when it comes to regulated industries and regulated players like CME Group, like Fidelity, you know, they see a lot of challenges with the public blockchains. Um, you know, there's kind of trivial things where you've heard about pornography being embedded in, in the Bitcoin blockchain, um, which, you know, wow, that sounds like a great headline. If you're a technologist and you know what it means, you know that it's 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 laughable, right? Um, but if you are an established firm um, and you have a regulatory framework and you've got a large base of clients, you know that is a very scary thing for you to be participating with. And they don't understand how they can participate on a blockchain that can potentially have those types of things happen. Um, other things that they worry about is things like the travel rule, which you know, FinCEN. Uh, recently uh, opined on as part of their May 9th guidance. Um, travel rule is a, is a um, requirement of FinCEN that you uh, share information between uh, financial institutions when you're transferring on behalf of others. Uh, it applies to all asset classes. It's not specific to, to crypto, but it's been a conundrum in the, in the Bitcoin space for some time because as you know, there's no room inside the Bitcoin blockchain to carry that type of information and you wouldn't want it public anyway. So how do you solve those problems? Another thing that they worry about on public ledgers is, what if you don't know who the miner is? What if ISIS is a miner? And if you pay a fee on a transaction that gets mined by a miner, which turns out to be ISIS, did you just fund a terrorist? Um, now you might kind of scoff, scoff at that being like a trivial thing. Oh, it's like two cents or whatever. But it, it's actually a real question. There is no de minimis amount for violating OFAC rules. You cannot do that. Um, and how do you how do you interface a public ledger um, with other activity when you can't understand who the miners are? Now, I think these issues will all go away. Um, I think that some of them will be solved, like the travel rule. We will solve it. I think others, um, we will learn and start to understand what blockchains offer and be able to um, reason about what the right rules are such as the, the mining example that I just gave. Um, but these are real concerns of companies that have been, you know, operating as financial institutions for long periods of time. And they need them solved. They need them answered before they can fully get into the space. I agree. I think, uh, you know, I 
I see that obviously we, we all see the benefits of public chains, but you know, I know time and time again that corporates have those very same frameworks you brought up and that they can't just go fully decentralized and distributed tomorrow, that it's going to take a rather long time and that there is going to be things that they need to safeguard. And they, again, have responsibilities to their clients and to their investors. And it's, it's, I obviously, we, we all want things to happen fast, but they can't happen fast when there's so much responsibility at stake. So I agree. So this has been a great conversation. One of the things that we like to do with our guests is getting to know them a little bit more on the personal side. And it's not necessarily who's your favorite baseball team or favorite, you know, football team, but it's more about like what you've been reading and what you've been listening to. Um, you know, I personally, we all know in crypto that everyone reads a lot or they try to read a lot. And so we'd love to know what you've been reading. If anything has kind of stuck out to you recently, you've talked to friends about it and you're like, wow, this is amazing. Um, we'd love to hear about that. And also in terms of music, I think it's really interesting because it tells about a person's personality, what gets them kind of going, what gets them, you know, working, what gets them kind of relaxed, whatever it may be. So what have you read recently and what music do you like? <laughs> All right. Um, well, I just got back from a trip. I, I, I don't get to read nearly as much as I, I used to. Um, but uh, on the plane, I was reading Currency Wars um, and uh, I enjoyed it quite a lot. It's, it's a little bit of older book, I think. Um, I don't know, 2012 or 2014. Did you read that one, um, James uh, Rick, Rickman? I think it has been recommended. Uh, as you, as you probably too, you have friends that recommend books all the time, and I think I've got a stack right next to my bed that are, I'm still trying to parse through. But that is one of them. Yeah, it's it's actually a great book. Um, you know, it doesn't talk about cryptocurrency specifically, but it talks about the the risks to the global financial system uh, today as countries, you know, fight to have you know better positioning against uh, their competing countries in terms of jobs and, and uh, imports and exports. Um, currency wars have been around you know, pretty high, I guess, in the last 100 years or so. Um, as we moved away from the gold standard, how, how do you know how much another country's uh, currency is worth um, and how do you regulate that? And uh, certainly with you know, what's going on with Donald Trump today, uh, and uh, you know tariffs he's in, in, you know putting in place you know this is this is a currency war, but most fascinating about the book is um, he did the author did a, participated in a simulation uh, with the U.S. government where they they were looking at what kinds of threats are there if World War III were fought at a currency level, and uh, they proposed what would happen if Russia introduced a gold-backed currency. Um, and teamed up with China to start using that to displace the dollar as the the global reserve currency. Um, and if you've read the news, you know, in the last month or so, you know, yep. Russia's talking about this stuff. Yep. Uh, you know, Russia and China, I think it was just a couple of years ago, started uh, doing trades of oil for the first time outside of the dollar. Um, as you may know, the dollar has been used for oil trades, um, you know, for the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, fascinating book about currencies. I think, you know, one of the great things about Bitcoin is it's opened up our eyes to what is money. And it's a question that we haven't really had to think about, you know, prior to Bitcoin. It's just been that stuff that the government controls and you try to get lots of it. Um, but uh, I, th I think one of the reasons we struggle with like the, the required legislation and regulation around this industry is that 
we don't have as individuals at the Senate level, at the congressional level, at the presidential level, at the corporate level, at the, you know, pretty much any level, about what is currency. Um, so starting to understand Bitcoin, you start to get a feel for it. And then I think the currency war book um, uh, is, is really interesting. So um, that was one that I read. Uh, and then uh, music wise. Well, let's see. Uh, I, I got a couple of things. I've got uh, I've got some kids at home and they always want to listen to uh, to their pop music, which is probably what I end up listening to with them more than um, more than I'd like. Uh <laughs> They uh, they have the luxury of technology, which allows them to skip music that they don't like uh, whimsically. Whereas when I grew up, you had a radio station and you had to just kind of plod through any song whether you liked it or not. And you had to wait for the one you had to wait for the one that you liked so you could record it <laughs> on your on your cassette tapes. Which yep. my, yeah, you make mixtapes and all kinds of stuff that you know kids don't know about these days. But uh, uh, and then when I'm working out uh, or when I run, I like to listen to music. So. Um, there I tend to listen to more uh, kind of, I guess, energy type of stuff. A little electronic music, maybe. Um, that's been a running thing with a lot of people in the space. So interesting, interesting stuff. So the last thing that we like to do with our guests is you know, let them tell people where they can find out more about you and find out more about Bitco. Well, thanks, David. Thanks for having us on. Um, I do think custody is a really critical critical point um, for, for our markets and – Bitco is about building that secure, safe, safe layer. And then beyond that, we're actually trying to help expand the market so that it's got a little bit more robustness in our market structure. Um, we're at, you know, www.bitco.com. Uh, you can find, find us there and uh, reach out to us anytime. Awesome. So this was Mike Belshi, the co-founder and CEO of BitGo. This was a great conversation about the state of custody. And this is, as Mike said, a ever-evolving kind of space and part of the entire digital asset community and ecosystem. And I have to also say one other thing is that a few years ago, we were nowhere near where we are today. And so things are happening at a clip that, you know, as long as technology keeps up and, you know, things are happening very fast and improvements are happening, as Mike alluded to. So where we are today is not where we're going to be in two years or three years. It's going to be far better. And so thank you, Mike, for coming on. Hopefully we can have you back on in a few months and catch up and see how things are going. And we'll be talking to you soon. Take care. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. For more notes from this past episode about our guests, please go to www.ar.ca slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on base layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space in the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.